0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, yes, welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I do this as a public service, because people who do not know how the world really works... Well, they pretty much make a mess of their lives, because if you don't know how the world really works, then there are a whole lot of things you're not going to be able to do. Things having to do with how you relate to other people, how you relate to money, how you relate uh, romantically, in every possible way. Knowing how the world really works is an enormous asset, and that is what we cover On this show, how do you know if you are a prime candidate for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show? How would you know if you do need instruction in how the world really works? Well, if you whine about things being unfair, then you do not know how the world really works. Yes, if it were not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you feel everyone has a right to medical care, everyone has a right to housing, or everyone has a right to a job, or everyone has a right to a trampoline or a hamster, well, then you do not have a clue. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel you no longer need to worry about your personal conduct, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a married woman and you feel you no longer need worry about your appearance, you don't know how the world really works. If you're a single guy and you feel that a woman should care about you and not your bank account, ha, you don't know how the world really works, as a matter of fact. I just wouldn't have a clue, if not for you. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a single woman, and you feel that a guy telling you he loves you, that means something, you don't know how the world really works you do not have a clue. If your main focus while interviewing for a job are questions that might violate your rights under government law, if that's your main focus when you're trying to get a job, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel that career decisions confronting your wife are her business and that expressing your opinion or your preference would violate your commitment to feminism, you do not know how the world really works. You don't have a clue. I just wouldn't have a clue, if not for you. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent, and you feel that your primary obligation to your children is getting them on that yellow school bus every morning, you do not know how the world Really works. If you're a parent and you feel that encouraging your kids to address you by your first name will help them develop into normal healthy adults, you don't have a clue about how the world really works. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and would rather your children cheat at an exam than smoke a cigarette... Well, yes, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a parent and you occasionally say to your child, don't tell your mother or or don't tell your father, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a single mother or a single father and you expect your child to accept your boyfriend or your girlfriend with warmth and enthusiasm, well, you don't know how the world really works. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and you feel it's okay for a doctor or a nurse to insist on speaking to your 12-year-old without you being in the room, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a parent and you feel it's not right to impose your moral values on your children, you do not know how the world really works. Works. Yeah, right, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're an engaged guy and you encourage your lady to keep her own name after marriage in the hope that it will show her how wonderfully enlightened you are, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a guy who's been dating a girl for four years now, confident that it's working out really well for both of you, you do not know how the world really works. I just wouldn't have a clue if not for you. If not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a young guy and you feel that enjoying your job is more important than how much money you're earning, you do not know how the world really works you don't have a clue. If you're a married guy who feels your wife ought to be cool with your platonic relationships with ex-girlfriends, or with female work associates for that matter, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a married woman and you feel your first priority is not your husband but your children, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. Works. If you talk your girlfriend into agreeing you won't have any children after you marry, and then you later expect her to happily stick to that agreement, you do not know how the world really works. That's right. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we focus on in this show making sure that we all understand with a deep certainty, rooted in every molecule of our consciousness, that we really get how the world really works. Now, it was uh, about two weeks ago, the show uh, concerned Yu Jia Wang, the remarkable young Chinese pianist, and um, I also spoke about prisons, and it was during that show that I indicated that uh, if I could, if I had the power to shut down all prisons, I would do it. I don't believe that the criminal justice system is well served at all by incarceration. And uh, I spoke about the, the brutal conditions, and uh, I alluded to circumstances that had been experienced during incarceration by some white collar uh, criminals. Um, who had spoken to me and whom I'd interviewed afterwards, and uh, I got two letters which I read to you uh, about two weeks ago. I had two letters from two different people who worked in California's uh, prison system, both correctional officers, and they spoke very strongly about there not being any Uh, maltreatment of prisoners now it may be that it's a question of of semantics in other words what constitutes brutality and what they may be speaking about it from a legal point of view and i think i was talking about it a little bit more from a human experiential point of view but at any rate uh, here's a letter i did just receive rabbi lapin first and foremost thank you for being my rabbi I love the insights I received from your podcast and other appearances. It has made me a better man and helped me to think deeply about what is important in life. Regarding your recent podcast on piano performance and prison reform and subsequent podcast responding to ex-prison guards who were disgruntled by your comments about prison culture, uh, I could not disagree more with them. My father has been incarcerated for 10 years for a white-collar crime with 19 years left to serve. The absurdity of his sentence length is a conversation for another time. To the point, never have I been treated so poorly and inhumanely by another person than I have by the correctional officers while visiting my dad. If you so much as look to be questioning the authority of those officers, you will be belittled and humiliated in front of other visitors and officers. They make up and change rules fit for their mood and threaten us law-abiding citizens as if we were guilty of heinous crimes ourselves. This only to the visitors of inmates. I can only imagine what the inmates are treated like within the prison walls shielded from the public eye. From speaking with my father and other inmates, I am appalled by what a little bit of power can do to a person overseeing other humans. One only need read into the Stanford Prison Experiment or the book Ordinary Men to understand how this might happen. It is the frailty of the human spirit at its finest, and our prison system only propagates such behavior. Not all prison guards are bad. There are good men and women doing all they can to make life better for themselves and those they serve, but I believe them to be a minority. Most guards will simply allow the worst guards to continue to behave pathetically, which is in itself a sin. From my experience and what I've personally seen from a receiving end, U.S. prisons are a toxic place made only worse by corrupt guards and wardens who love power and the feeling of superiority to another human. Those men who wrote to you upset about what you said regarding prisons may have been in prisons which did not tolerate abuse or neglect. But my father has been in four different federal prisons, and each of them have had some severe level of toxicity made worse by sadistic guards. I'm sure your original opinion was based on your visiting to prisons and first-hand experience with inmates. Know that this is the norm. I agree with you about letting out all prisoners immediately. What prison does to families and the inmates themselves tears this country apart, one hurting family at a time. Thanks for all you do. P.S. I am 26 years old and unmarried with a desire to form a family. Throughout my college career, I was searching for my passion, but never found fulfillment pursuing it. I graduated with a useless degree in international studies. I have now returned to school to pursue nursing with the goal of becoming a nurse practitioner, which I believe I will be able to excel at greatly. However, I feel a little behind in doing what I should have done years ago. How can I move forward with faith and hope that I will attract the right woman, even though I am a bit behind in accomplishing those things that would set me up to not only attract the woman I desire, but to be able to provide for her both temporarily and spiritually. Thank you for teaching that men and women are different, and thank you for your time, Rabbi. And he signs his name. Um, quite, quite an interesting letter, and of course I, I can't tell. I simply don't know. Uh, I, I believe his experiences, and I also believe the letters that I receive from listeners who actually work in the prisons. So uh, it's obviously a mixed bag. But the fact is that we are paying about $160,000 a year to keep each of our inmates in prison. I believe the figure of incarcerated Americans is over 2 million. Uh, It sounds bizarre, does it not? I mean, it sounds absolutely incredible. But uh, think what it is costing. Do you realize that you could stay at a four- or five-star hotel for less than $160,000 a year, we could literally put our inmates up in terrific hotels for less than it costs to keep them in prison. Why is it so expensive to keep them in prison? I have absolutely no idea. I simply cannot imagine. You can get your board and lodging and at a, a first-class university with all your uh, fees paid for less than that a year. Throw in a few guards, and $160,000 times 2 million, my goodness, that is a lot of money. There is a huge amount that is wrong with our um, penitentiary system our system of incarceration for criminal justice and uh, as you know uh, this this show is not that preoccupied uh with um finding practical solutions because i don't think i can i'm not smart enough to do that i don't have enough experience in politics and uh all i want to do is provide you with the tools, because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I've heard from many of you, I know that among the listeners of this show are many people who are in positions of influence, people who do possess the capability to shape change in society, and my job, I see, is providing the thought tools and the ideas that underpin ancient Jewish wisdom, and that lie at the heart of a functioning civilization. Something that just happened uh, a few days before I am recording this current show was the grounding of the Boeing um, 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 aircraft aircraft. Uh, The background to this, quickly just to to fill you in, is that uh, back last year, on October the 29th, uh, a Boeing 737 of the MAX 8 version, uh, operated by Lion Airlines uh, from Indonesia, took off from uh, Jakarta Airport to uh, head over to somewhere else. I'm not sure what it was, Lion Air Flight 610. I don't know exactly what its destination was. But uh, 12 minutes after takeoff, it crashed down into the Java Sea, killing 189 people. That was October 29th. On March the 11th, 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 uh, took off from addis ababa airport heading f- d- down to n- south down to nairobi and um again uh, about 8 minutes after takeoff it crashed and um killed everybody on board the uh, su- the the in the the equipment suspected in the lion air crash and um, and possibly in the ethiopian airlines crash was something called MCAS stands for maneuvering characteristics augmentation system and uh, what that does is the following Um, an airplane is kept aloft by what's called lift the wings generate lift and the way the wings generate lift is that the air passes over the wings and uh, it travels faster over the top surface of the wing than over the bottom surface of the wing. And without going into the details of Bernoulli's uh, theorem, the bottom line is the air pressure above the wing drops, the air pressure abo- below the wing is is high, and it lifts the wing up into the air. In addition to that, you also get another aspect of lift, which is that when the wings are tilted slightly upwards facing the oncoming a rush of air, and again, I'm speaking relatively because the air isn't rushing. The airplane is rushing, but it causes uh, air to pass rapidly over the wing. Now, you know what it's like when you hold your arm out of the car. Don't try this at home, kids. But when you hold your arm out of a car window that's traveling at uh, you know sixty miles an hour, every kid's done it, and you um, you you hold your arm uh, you hold your hand flat parallel to the ground. You feel nothing, right? You just feel the wind rushing over your hand, making your hand feel cool. But then, if you start raising the front of your hand, you start tilting it upwards to face the oncoming rushing air, you feel the wind pushing your hand upwards. Now, that's a very strong lift effect as well. And then, if you keep tilting your hand, uh, you eventually reach the point where your hand is now 90 degrees to the ground. And at this point, your hand is no longer being lifted. It's just being forced backwards. So you, you everybody's experienced this. Okay, well, when a, uh, a plane takes off, uh, it lifts the nose, the wings lift, and you not only have the rushing of the air over the wings, but you also have additional wind force uh, against the bottom of the wing because it's now facing Uh, the wind rush caused by its forward motion and uh, you get this additional lift necessary for going airborne and uh, that initial climb out off the uh, off the runway well um, if you keep tilting going back to your hand for a moment right if you just tilt your hand slightly upwards in the oncoming air rush out of your car window Uh, you'll feel a little bit of lift, and as you tilt it more and more, you'll feel more and more lift until, at a certain point, the airstream breaks away, as it were, and you no longer feel any lift at all, and now all you get is resistance. Okay, at what angle does that happen? Well, it depends on your hand and your airspeed, depends on a lot of things, but on an airplane, uh, this is very specific, which is to say that, Um, as the nose lifts up, uh, the wings generate uh, a lot of lift, and if you were to continue raising the nose, there is a certain point at which the lift would vanish because you've caused the airflow to break, and the aircraft would then do what's known as a stall and would literally fall out of the sky. And uh, on any sort of airplane, I, I don't know if I've mentioned that uh, that I used to fly, I mean, not, not commercially, just private. And uh, even on small little Pipers and Cessnas that uh, I used to fly, uh, there would be a stall warning in the cockpit. And obviously on, on big jet airliners, there's a very loud stall warning. It's a very real thing. Uh, and what that means is that uh, the instruments sense that the wing is, uh, the angle of attack, as it's called, is getting a little bit too high, the airplane's pointing upwards too steeply, and it's very, uh, it's just about, it's an incipient stall up just about to go from a state of high lift to zero lift, and it's very dangerous. Uh, In fact, I don't even think, airplanes are, are so well designed today that I don't think That for a private pilot's license, they still train in stall recovery, but um, I, I could, you know, if you woke me up in the middle of the night and said suddenly recover from a stall, I'd still, I'd still know what to do, Uh, because it's so drilled into you because a stall is so very dangerous, particularly at relatively low altitude. I mean, that's it can be fatal at low altitude, but if you're at a high altitude. Um, the instructor would throw the airplane into a stall, and by the way on a on a modern airplane that 's really, really hard to do especially i 'm talking about uh, planes intended for uh, private use i'm i just don 't know about um, jet airliners; I suspect they can probably stall a bit more easily because they 're designed um, to to higher performance. Um, whereas, you know, a, a Piper pa 28 is designed for, for safe training of a, of a new pilot, not for performance. They, it was really hard to stall, but when the instructor would throw it in a stall, I knew exactly what I had to do uh, to recover, and uh, I was trained to recover with as little loss of altitude as possible, and if, if you could recover out of a stall, in about 400 feet, you were doing very well indeed. If you only lost about 400 feet of altitude, that meant that a stall uh, as low as 500 feet off the ground, you stood a chance of coming out of. Anyway, probably more information than you really want. But um, here is the interesting thing. Until a few years ago, there was a clash of philosophy between Boeing and uh, Airbus in Europe. And this all, by the way, became fairly well known after the miracle on the Hudson with the U.S. Airways flight that uh, uh, Sullenberger, Captain Sullenberger brought down on the Hudson River. And he was flying on that day an Airbus, and, uh, and there was considerable talk about, you know, how would he have fared in a Boeing? Probably just fine, but it's a different thing. What is the difference in philosophy? Uh, Boeing used to put the pilot in the center of the command structure in the cockpit. In other words, there was co- there was feedback through the controls to, to the pilot. In other words, the pilot was treated as very much a human being in command of the airplane. Uh, the philosophy at Airbus was this is a hugely complicated piece of equipment, Uh, Correct operation and flying is beyond what a person or even two people can do, and so we are putting the computers in basic charge with a pilot in supervisory mode. Um, you know, I'm not. Neither one is right or wrong. These are two differing philosophies, and obviously, they both worked fine. It all just depended on flight training. You just had to train, and this is why it is. You don't get a license just to fly. You get a license with a rating for a specific aircraft, and uh, that's one of the reasons that commercial aviation in general has uh, has become so so much safer than anybody could have dreamed back in you know 1947 after World War II uh, there was already commercial aviation but I don't think anyone could have dreamed that you would have the numbers of passenger miles flown today with as uh, uh, as good a safety record as we have at any rate uh the uh this is what used to be until a few years ago uh, Boeing has now pretty much moved in the direction of Airbus and uh, and the reason is the complexity and one of the things one of the features that uh, Boeing introduced as part of the system was instead of having a warning to the pilot uh, stall 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 alert stall alert Uh, a little sort of klaxon siren going off there i mean you you really can't mistake it but instead of doing that and leaving the recovery to the pilot uh, boeing installed software as i said uh, mcas maneuvering characteristics Augmentation system which in um which what basically does is it can override the pilot control inputs unless by the way it's switched off and there are actually two switches. Um, right there in between the two, um, the pilot and the first officer, which which can flick it off. But you need to very quickly know that it's happening. You need training to know exactly what's going on. What's going on? So everybody is trained. Okay. Every pilot is, is trained, including amateurs like me, that uh, when you are um, uh, that, okay, we know that pulling back on the control – Uh, raises the plane's nose that puts the plane into a climb and um, we also know that if you overdo that and you don't pay attention to the warning you're going to go into a stall right about the most dangerous maneuver in flying so uh, at that point if there's any danger of stalling one of the first things you do is push the control yoke all the way forward pushing the nose down because the idea is to get the plane flying quickly, as quickly as possible, even if it's initially in a downward uh, mode, which is all you can do at that point. Uh, And then the idea is to pull out of that dive as quickly as you possibly can once the airplane is flying, which means that the aircraft wings are once again generating lift. So what MCAS does on the Boeing 737 MAX series 8 and 9 is it doesn't just rely on a stall warning, it pushes the control forward itself. This can be very disconcerting, all right? I don't know if you've driven a modern uh, car that uh, detects if you are drifting off a lane, if you're drifting over the dotted line. And uh, what it does is it can wrench the steering wheel back to sort of make you go back in lane. I don't, you know, I, I'm i not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I myself would tend to turn it off when I'm driving. I just think I'd find it too disconcerting to feel the steering wheel pulling uh, away when I'm not turning it. So, as you know, I am not a big enthusiast of so-called autonomous cars. By the way, I have a letter on that topic as well, I don't, uh, which I'll come back to. But, uh, Uh, so what they're thinking might have happened at the moment nobody knows but what they're thinking might have happened it sort of fits this the scenario that uh, on the lion air crash in october the end of october 2018 uh, the plane got a false input the it ideally it should receive information from multiple sensors because the computer has to decide, hey, you're about to go into a stall. So even if you don't, even if you refuse to act on the warning, the computer is nonetheless going to force the nose down, uh, which, you know, as I say, would probably be disconcerting unless you've been very thoroughly trained on this feature. At at any rate, uh, it, it should receive... ideally the computer should receive input from uh, you know probably the artificial horizon and the airspeed and 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 maybe even sensors that measure the airflow over the wing i think they have such things on on most jetliners so there are probably a lot of different areas that it should get input from. I'm not sure that it does. I think it may not do that, but but that probably will be one of the changes they'll introduce. At any rate, the computer decides, "Hey, you're stalling." It it forces the control yoke forward, and uh, if you are not really stalling, and this is soon after takeoff, you're now being. Uh, push dangerously down to the ground even though you may not be in a stall the computer wrongly concluded that you're in a stall you're still close to the ground and this is in all probability fatal and uh, it pulls hard I mean it's extremely difficult to override Um, you know your adrenaline starts pumping when things go wrong when you're flying and um, and to remember that you can switch it off it's really not that simple Um, I'll give you an example um, Sullenberger landing the plane, the U.S. Airways plane on the Hudson River, the miracle on the Hudson. Um, I mean, what a what a phenomenal job he did. And one of the things he did was it was very, you know, very, uh, very smart and very good training. He shut out of his mind all extraneous information. So if you ever followed that story closely, you'll know that after the Newark Excuse me, after the uh, LaGuardia controller started was telling him about Teterboro Airport, which as you're flying south along the Hudson River over the George Washington Bridge, Teterborough is sort of ahead of you over to the right. And you'll see Sullenberger doesn't answer. He just no more communication with the tower, even though he's still flying. Uh, Why? It's no longer important. He has to concentrate and focus on only the things that are absolutely vital. And, uh, and that's what he does. Now, I don't know if he consciously shut out of his mind. I got to think he forgot about it in the tension. But uh, the Airbus he was flying has a sealing switch, um, S-E-A-L, to seal. What it does is it shuts out, it shuts off all openings in the airplane. Um, it's specifically meant for water landing, and it, it enables the plane to stay afloat for much longer um, Sullenberger forgot to switch it, I think he forgot, because I don't think there would be something he would shut out, sort of ignore, uh, you're landing on the river, hello, you got to shut, anyway, God was with him, and the plane stayed afloat for long enough for everyone to get safely off, and what an uplifting and wonderful day that was, but, um, it's, it's, it's very easy to be, uh, adrenaline pumping with everything going on, very easy to, and your control yoke is pulling forward and you your mind is racing and the adrenaline is pumping and you're trying to figure out what could be going on you know why is my control yoke doing this and you know i can look out the window i see we're flying and it's very easy very easy to forget that there are these two switches that'll turn off the mcas system and let you fly the plane completely manually Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some pilots, uh, some experienced pilots, just turn it off at takeoff, (laughs) right away. But uh, at any rate, that is uh, uh, what happened. Now, um, you know, look, it's very easy. This is one of the reasons that training is so important. Um, It's 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 like uh, martial arts. It's like self defense. It's not good enough to buy a book telling you what to do if you are attacked from the rear, what to do if somebody pokes a gun at you, what to do if somebody stabs at you with a knife. It's not good enough. You actually have to spend months and months uh, actually practicing and having these scenarios played at you over and over again so you get muscle memory. And so is that if, heaven forbid, the worst happens, uh, you don't have to think, oh, wait a sec, this attack was covered in chapter 12 Uh, let me think it's too late your body has to immediately spring into action with a convulsive jerk into the right position completely instinctively and it's like that flying as well you you've got to you know the training makes all the difference Uh, i don't actually know uh, the hours of the lion air pilots but i do know that the ethiopian air Uh, pilot the captain in charge was uh, you know he had eight thousand hours which is pretty good i mean that's solid uh the first officer sitting in the right hand seat had uh, 200 hours hello that's that's kind of learner level um if that if i'm if i'm right on that if that's true that's really uh, pretty bad that isn't good at all anyway um uh the the Ethiopian airline flight, was March uh, 11th, Sunday, March 11th, 2019, and two days later, oh, right away, European airlines grounded the uh, Boeing 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 models that are equipped with this, and uh, they, European airlines grounded, the uh, FAA, the uh, our administration did not ground them, and then finally, two days later, on March 13th, they did ground Ground them, and uh, needless to say, uh, the president was attacked for taking too long to ground the airplanes, uh, the seven thirty seven. And I, I want to tell you the the take on that. I, I don't believe that is right. Um, the The way the world really works is you have to balance everything, and I myself. Uh, i would have i would have not have hesitated to get on a uh an american domestic flight like southwest that was flying a lot of 737 max eights i wouldn't have hesitated and i have flown on it by the way um uh, but i would i would have got on 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 monday or, or tuesday the um uh march the uh 12th or or, or uh the third i would have done it would have gone wouldn't have worried me at all why what is my thinking? Well. Uh, first of all, I think that if there really were concerns, uh, pilots would have not wanted to fly the plane. Um, and I think that uh, I'm not aware of a single domestic airline uh, in which a pilot said, I don't want to fly the the, the... the You know what? That's good enough for me. I think that they, they know what they're doing. Um We don't know what caused these planes to go down yet. It might have been the MCAS system. I think that uh, apparently, uh, certainly since the October 2018 event, I think there's been a lot of training. I think Boeing has been sending out memos and uh, rulings and directives on this. So, I really would not have worried about it. I would have gone on it. And in my opinion, uh, the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, was quite correct not to ground the airplanes. Why do I say that? Because I think the uh, the, the risk was negligible. As I say, the, it's not as if uh, we know that's what caused it. Uh, all, all these considerations I've been alluding to, I just don't think there was reason to ground the planes. Um, remembering, of course, that now why was it grounded well i'm quite sure that advisors went to the president or maybe to people in the aviation administration and they said look superstitious people believe accidents comes come in threes so we're waiting for the next 737 max 8 accident god forbid and when that happens if it happens in domestic airspace with an american airline and people are killed it's going to be your fault mr president or it's going to be your fault head of the acting head of the faa uh, you didn't ground the planes it just shows you care more about corporation profit than you do about human beings you don't really care about the lives of americans you risk the lives of americans say look it's just not worth it um we better just ground them in that way um that way we we play it safe in other words it's a political decision I have no doubt about that whatsoever and because of the constant barrage of attacks under which this administration exists and functions uh, I can't even say I really blame them for taking that step but uh, look the the way the world really works is you 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 have to balance conflicting uh, needs. Things are not black and white. It's not as if the only responsible thing to do was to ground the uh, America's fleet of 737 MAX 8s and 9s. Not at all. You've also got to understand the uh, the needs of the traveling public and uh, uh, what happens to, to flights. Thousands and thousands of people were incredibly inconvenienced against which you might say, well, that counts for absolutely nothing when it comes to safety. But wait a second, and uh, this is something I've discussed previously on the show a while back. Look, we always make this balance. Do you know how many people, how many Americans are going to die in traffic accidents in 2019? And the answer is, you don't have to be a prophet to know the answer, because the figures are about the same for 2018, 2017, 60, or 2010, 29. We know that over 30,000 people a year die on American roads, right? If we really cared about human life, shouldn't we eliminate that? Shouldn't we stop all deaths on American roads? Well, how would you do that? It's easy, you introduce a 10 mile an hour speed limit, or you ban all cars and make all transport has to be by bus or train. Uh, there, there are lots of things you can do. You you really want to get rid of every single last road traffic fatality? Easy. It's just that nobody would do that. Nobody wants you to do that. There's not, voters don't want you to do that. People recognize, you know what, we are willing, as a society, let's face it, we're willing to put up with 30,000 plus deaths a year, in order to have the convenience of traveling by car on the roads of America. I, I don't know of another way to put it, but that is the simple, brutal reality. And in exactly the same way, we make air travel absolutely as safe as we can, and it's truly miraculous what has been achieved. Um, the, uh, the Occasionally, there is a tragedy, something goes wrong, the fact is, we are willing to put up with that. We are. And that is why it is that the administration decided not to ground the, uh, Max, Air, the Max 7 and 8 and 9. It just wasn't called for. I uh, understand the political realities of the decision. I do. But um, it was all in all for America. It was a wrong decision it was just it was a wrong decision all right fine i just want you to notice that uh, the attacks the attacks on the president just never stopped it was uh it was it was extraordinary and uh and i get it okay i i told you about uh self-driving cars on various shows i've said two things number one i don't like self-driving cars uh, one of the reasons i don't like them is that they are programmed to make moral decisions that may not be the decision i want i've covered this in the past um, i've spoken about the fact that uh, they are going to recognize uh, the cars are going to have senses for recognizing uh, who i might be killing by swerving into another lane and so the autonomous equipment might stop me from swerving into the other lane. It won't do it, and instead it'll engage me in a head-on with a, a with an eighteen wheeler, because um, the ethical specialists—and I say that phrase in very bold quotation marks—the ethical specialists working for the companies that are developing uh, autonomous driving cars. Uh, are busy trying to figure out what the decisions they will program into it. I don't want that. And so I'm not interested in having an autonomous car. Number two, I don't think that autonomous cars are coming very soon. Um, I get a letter and uh, it says, Hello, Rabbi, I heard your concerns about the self-driving car. I fully agree with you, although I'm an engineer and i should be enthusiastic about it but i'm not anyway just as a way to thank you and giving you some fun here is a dutch commercial mocking the self-driving car thank you for being my rabbi greetings and blessings from the netherlands and it's from hans and he has a url for a, a, a youtube uh, i think it's a youtube, a YouTube video uh there's actually a very funny series of videos put out by a Dutch insurance company uh, and one of them was about a self-driving car it was really fantastically well done uh, and i actually did laugh uh, so hans uh, thank you very much indeed it um, it, it it was <laughs> it was really very good um and so that was a a letter from somebody in holland here's a letter from somebody um An equally exotic and foreign land, the San Francisco Bay Area. Peace, Rabbi Lappin and Susan Lappin. God bless you both for all the hard work the two of you do to put together such inspiring and thought-provoking content. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not going to read you uh, a uh, an insulting letter that hates everything we do. Fact is that, I mean, if we get two of those a year, it's a lot. I really can't think of when we last got a negative letter but anyway um, it so happens uh, it, it sounds self-serving and self-congratulatory but uh, look I appreciate it when when people confirm that uh, the work that Susan Lappin and I do is helpful uh, to you all I like that so he says uh, God bless you all the work you put together such inspiring and thought-provoking content Every week, I look forward to hearing your podcast, and I always tell myself I need to reach out and let you both know how much I appreciate your work. The timely wisdom that you pack into each episode is incredibly refreshing. Um, Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, He continues, I live in the Bay Area and am continuously inundated with leftist propaganda, and it is a real gem to find quality content that is moral, God-fearing, non-blasphemous, and pro-liberty. Additionally, I am a monotheist, submitter, who follows the Quran and believes that the Old Testament and New Testament are scriptures of God. I refuse to call myself a Muslim, as I believe this term and the religion, who people identify as Islam, has been sadly hijacked by zealots who turned the religion into a satanic cult. I am part of a small congregation and rotate with other members in giving our Friday sermons and I also have a podcast of my own. I try my best to spread the message of monotheism, appreciation, morality, and liberty, and pull inspiration for my sermons and podcasts from your weekly episodes. Uh, With current population trends, it is more important today than ever that the billion-plus individuals out there that self-identify as Muslim, especially the youth, hear a message that promotes morality as opposed to hate and bigotry. Unfortunately, As many are either implicitly or explicitly raised to hate anything associated with Judaism or Israel, I don't think too many will be tuning in to listen to our rabbi and his lovely wife. But know that your good words are being heard by even more than you know through the ones you also inspire. Peace and God bless, Peter. And so that's from Peter in the Bay Area. Thanks, Peter. And uh, my condolences. I I feel sad about the... uh, huge number of Muslims who were killed at worship in Christchurch, New Zealand, only a few hours ago. Now, predictably, uh, numerous places have started using the New Zealand Muslim attack um, as a way to attack President Trump. Not so surprisingly— Uh, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, the sort of spokesman for uh, American Muslims, uh, blames President Trump immediately. I mean, the the bodies had not yet been covered before CARE blamed President Trump. Now look, uh, there are a couple of things that uh, I want to point out to you. Uh, When emotions take over, dangerous things happen that is true for business negotiations, it's true for romantic uh, relationships, and there's a room, there's space for emotions there, obviously, but when important life-impacting decisions are made on the basis of emotions, it's really bad. A, A Massachusetts court, I believe it was, recently ruled that gun manufacturers can be sued by people, by the family of people killed or injured uh, by uh, a criminal using those weapons. Now, this is an emotional decision. It's a very bad decision because there is no end to the matter. Um, So, obviously, even if there is no fault in the design of a steak knife, but some malevolent lunatic killed somebody with a steak knife, well now the cutlery manufacturer is going to be susceptible to a major lawsuit. There used to be a provision in American law that isolated the manufacturer from, uh, as long as there was no design flaw in the product, but isolated the manufacturer from lawsuits having to do with things that were done with that product. This is an example of a decision which um, is made emotionally and again People who don't understand how the world really works and fall into the trap of thinking that complicated issues can be resolved with a viewpoint from only one side and who say, what, are you a heartless human being? Don't you think that the victims' families deserve compensation and the deep pockets are those of the gun manufacturer, so he should be a... Look, this is what I hear in conversation with people all the time, but it's wrong. It's wrong. It's just plain and simply wrong. Also, the idea that a person can be held liable, and I was very disturbed, by the way, with a ruling, a court ruling, that held a young woman liable for the death of her boyfriend because she talked him into killing himself. She talked him into taking his own life. Look, I think she's a pretty bad girlfriend, but to hold her criminally liable for the death of somebody when she was talking, very, very troubling and chilling precedent. And, and I, I've got to think it's going to be appealed and dealt with. It's, it's too dangerous a precedent because what this means then is that uh, these things are very loosely defined. And from here onwards, any time, any action can be linked to any word spoken by anybody, that person is now criminally liable. It's a real problem. And again, as thoughtful people who understand how the world really works, we balance both sides. There is a right to free speech, right? And are people going to abuse it? No doubt about that at all. But the uh, the other the 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 downside of of doing it that way is essentially removing the idea of freedom of speech. Now you can have a criminal culpability if somebody says, "Well, what you said made him take his life." It's a huge problem, and it was a bad mistake. Uh, emotional decisions are usually not good, and so um, similarly in. Um, in in some of the statements that have been made about the New Zealand massacre, uh, the the vilification that is being used for the the uh, the villain and for the the, the 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 criminal who did this thing is they're calling him a nationalist. Now you have to understand that today the media is very politicized and they've turned the word nationalist into a curse. Uh, They've turned it into something that makes ordinary decent people shudder and say, oh no, was he a nationalist? Or how dare you call me a nationalist? I am not a nationalist. This This is the way this word has now been converted. What is a nationalist? Well, Nobody really knows, because unlike the word socialist, which was pretty much defined by Karl Marx in extensive writings on the topic and many others, uh, the word nationalist, well, that's a little more difficult. But if we try and understand the meaning of the word, it means somebody who is devoted to his country, to his nation. So that would seem to be a good thing. So why is it a bad thing? Well, you have to understand that there is a reason why the international song of communism is the international and you've got to understand why although i'm told he thought better of it in the later years of his life when john lennon wrote the song imagine which was a an anthem to socialism and communism um it all revolved around no borders, no nations, and then he wandered into the area of fantasy saying, well, when we take away nations and we take away borders, then there'll be love and peace and brotherhood all around. Well, without uh, arguing about what would, might, could have, or would happen, uh, let's just say that part of the dream of the left is internationalism. Uh, This would be one reason why the left Loves an institution that I loathe, and that is the United Nations, because it is their dream of one government for the whole world. The left loves the idea of an international court in Holland, in The Hague, and oh, we're going to bring international criminals to justice. And uh, I've always said it was a dumb idea from the beginning. Uh, First of all, a court is meaningless if there is not a police system. If the judge cannot order the police to go and get somebody he rules that has to be stood in front of him or put in jail, a judge without a police system is nothing but a buffoon. And uh, that is exactly what the International Court in The Hague is. Uh, It's it's buffoonish. It's silly. It's a joke, and. it's um, it's very, very dangerous when we start trying to get, everybody should conform, all nations must conform to international, there is no international law, stop it already, don't be silly, there is no such thing, there should not be an attempt to make such a thing, and there never actually will be such a thing, and uh, once again, if they persist with this nonsense, the only people who will actually follow the rulings of the International Court of Law are people like Barack Obama, but... Uh, some of the people you'd really like to have follow the rulings of the international court, like North Korea or Iran, uh, obviously do absolutely nothing at all and ignore it. So we've got to just realize, uh, put that away, it's nonsense, forget about it. But what we do have to understand is why the left loves things that are international. What's that all about? Well, Uh, You know, some of you are going to roll your eyes, you're going to slap your forehead, and you're going to say, oh, there our rabbi goes again, uh, finding everything in the Bible. Well, I'm sorry if uh, it makes... Well, why should I be sorry if it makes you laugh? Uh, If I bring a little good cheer into the world, so be it. But sure enough, as early as chapter 10 of Genesis... Um, there are three references, I think they're verse 5, 20, and 31, um, and the references are each nation according to their nation and according to their land. In other words, the way the good Lord created human beings, we have certain instincts and certain natures built into us. Yes, I know, liberalism believes that every aspect of the human being is mutable, can be changed and adapted, And that these things are all cultural, you don't have to worry. It's funny, is it not, that the left believes that culture shapes something as fundamental as gender or sex. You know, the only reason that your daughter, your baby daughter likes playing with dolls and your son likes playing with guns is culture. But if you give your son from the earliest years a pink little dolly and you give your daughter a nice gray gun uh, to play with, well, you'll be able to turn everything around. Not true. Doesn't work. And silly theories like that uh, can only be articulated by childish academics with doctorates. Nobody else could be dumb enough to actually think that is true. Why are they driven to feel that way? Well, because they start off with the absolute given, which is that the Bible, uh, where it says in chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, male and female, he created them. We're going to violate that. It's not true. We are rejecting this monumental volume that has shaped civilization. Toss it out. And now, in chapter 10 of Genesis, three times nations and their lands, the good Lord created us with an instinct to form uh, boundaries and to form units, namely nations, and national differences and ethnic and cultural differences are good. They're not bad. It's good that there is that diversity in the world. Is it not? Well, obviously, uh, to the left, internationalism is Uh, very important and therefore anybody who cares about his nation particularly as you should do in the same way you should care about your children more than about society's children you should care about your wife more than you care about all the women of the world and you should care about your nation more than you care about all the nations of the world. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Morality depends on a hierarchical uh, affinity, and that is just how we are created, and that is how the world really works. And so, uh, uh, the, the, the left, with its commitment to socialism and its dream of internationalism, frowns on anybody who has the temerity to like his country more than he likes other countries. And this is why uh, Barack Obama simply could not swallow the idea of American exceptionalism and you'll remember that he said something along the lines, well, every nation has its, its unique qualities. The French are unique in their way. We're unique in our way. <laughs> no, we are actually remarkably unique in the overall uh, spectrum of nations of the world. America does have some very significant differences. And uh, the idea of nationalism, okay, so in, a, in and of itself, being patriotic, which again is something that the left disparages, just try saying on an American university campus, "I am a patriotic American," and imagine what will happen to you. Or, in in fact, you can even find out what would happen to you by by researching it. Uh, the idea of patriotism is rejected, and this is true for other countries. You know, I I understand. I look at my map in the studio with all the pins of, around the world, and, and I'm so happy and proud to have listeners in so many different countries. And by the way, if you are in a different country, uh, an unusual country, please write in to me. Go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and do please uh, tell me where you are listening from. So I know there are people listening outside of America. In fact, we probably— I don't know numbers actually. I uh, I could check up with. Uh With an associate of mine who keeps those things on record, but we have a huge number of listeners around the world. So uh, I understand that, and what I'm saying is true for other countries as well. In other words, loving your country is a good thing. Being a nationalist simply means caring more for your nation than for all the other nations of the world. Doesn't mean you you don't like them. Doesn't mean you hate them. Doesn't mean you disparage or belittle or demean them. It simply means you love your nation more than you love other nations. That's what being national is about and that is of course why the left loathes the term and turns it into a uh, a word of of disparagement and insult oh he's a nationalist well uh, i'm proud to to be one and uh, And I think the British who voted for Brexit, the British who voted to take themselves out of the European Union, and they get disparaged by the intellectual and academic and political elite in, oh, it's just the nationalists who wanted to take us out of the European Union. Uh, God bless them. I think they're exactly right. And um, I think they're feeling pretty frustrated at the extent to which the political and intellectual and academic elites in the United Kingdom are trying to subvert their will and keep England in the European Union, which would be a ghastly mistake from their point of view. But I am an American, and while I have views and uh, attitudes towards virtually every other country, uh, I'm not an expert. I also don't have a stake in every other country. I don't have my children living in that country. So what they do, they will do. Um, also something that happened in the week that I'm taping this particular show was a huge university admission scandal. And I'm not going to deal with that because I am coming up slowly on the time limit I impose upon myself for the show. And so Uh, It's going to have to be dealt with another time. However, I I will say this. My reactions to hearing of this um, uh, scandal where people bribed individuals in order to get their children into prestigious universities, um, look, uh, I've always said that the only way into university should ideally be on the basis of academic merit. Uh, once you start and you say, well, we don't like the fact, and this is how it started, by the way, that too many Jews are getting into Ivy League colleges, and then it was too many Asians, and uh, not enough African Americans, or whatever it is they were saying, we've got to tamper with the admission. So, as we get a uh, an admission class more that looks more like america what about that thinks more like america what about that um, uh, creates more like no you've got to look like it because socialism is inherently materialistic and so to socialism things like skin color are as important on people as they are on dogs and cows but to somebody who understands how the world really works What really matters about somebody is not their skin color, it's their value system, it's their beliefs, it's the things they know, it's the skills they possess, the experience they've acquired. All of these are things that matter, not skin color. But you cannot talk the left out of its obsession with skin color. And so they started tampering with university admissions Uh, preferential treatment for people they want to get in, tougher treatment on Asians. And by the way, I think there is a lawsuit filed uh, by Asians against Harvard right now, quite rightly, saying that they are being discriminated against in admissions. They are. They absolutely are. There's no question. And, uh, And so then they said, well, here's a good way to get around it. They said, let's have Uh, athletic scholarships that's way that way we'll be able to welcome in people who wouldn't ordinarily get into university all right fine the whole thing's a disaster and uh, the dislike of objective testing uh, is felt by two groups of people the uh, financial elites who want their kids to get in and their kids just don't have the drive or the smarts to be able to uh, ace the a the act or the sat Examinations to get into university, and that's why universities started saying, Well, we're going to put a lot of weight on essays and interviews rather, in other words, turning the whole thing subjective so universities can admit exactly who they wish to admit on the basis of uh, politics and uh, political correctness. And so, uh, people, the financial elites who believed that with money they can buy anything, well, they never liked the objective testing system for getting at university, because that meant they had to go scurrying, looking for a side door in. And the other people, of course, are the leftist intellectuals who want to um, social engineer university admissions, and objective examinations prevent that from happening. At any rate, uh, I have two thoughts from ancient Jewish wisdom on this university admission scandal. Um, The first one is very simply get the government out of the university system. The government should have nothing to do with universities. They should be private. The government should be out of the business of student loans. All of that stuff It was political. It was started for bad reasons. It's grown for bad reasons. Uh, In all probability, it's going to be eventually a huge hole in the federal deficit. It's terrible. Uh, Government out of universities. That would be ideal. Uh, The second thing that would be ideal, and again, I acknowledge that I'm not here setting policy. Uh, I'm not even suggesting practical politics at all. I'm saying that from the point of view of building a good society, Uh, we should diminish the importance of university. Just think of how many people are coming out of university with useless degrees in gender studies and race relations, and uh, I can't begin to give you the full catalog of useless courses uh, in which people can graduate with degrees, and then the only single place in the entire economy that they can get a job again is another university where they continue uh, propagating this for all time that so they'll teach another university uh, class on these useless topics anyway uh it's 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 a real shame what there ought to be is much more in the way of vocational training apprenticeships Not everybody should go to university, and in society, there shouldn't be the same emphasis on university, particularly when universities are doing such a horrible job on turning out ideal citizens. Say no more, right? I mean, does anybody think universities, with few exceptions, Hillsdale College in Michigan, a few others, um, obviously Liberty University, these are all universities that have nothing to do with the government. But otherwise, the vast array of American universities do not turn out people that are good citizens, really not good for the future of the United States of America. And so uh, I believe there ought to be a huge change in that. And uh, we ought to be focused much more on uh, teaching values and much more on teaching useful skills that other human beings need. Uh, That is what uh, I think, and that's what I think that this university admission scandal highlights. Get the government out of university education and restore the value of education to the country. Uh, Do not any longer allow the government to fund a system where university administrators can ignore economic realities. How dare these people take tens of thousands of dollars from students and then graduate those students with useless degrees with with which they can do absolutely nothing in their lives and then you listen to sanctimonious language of university administrator oh learning for its own sake don't be misled by that Uh, they're not conveying learning at all and uh the 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 system really eventually is going to collapse of of its own uh, cancerous corruption inside it, it's it's going to, it's going to have to happen, but it could really be a lot more painless if it were taken care of right away and in advance. Uh, that would really be very good indeed. At any rate, my friends, the website is com, and uh, in um, at the time I am writing this, the uh, the holiday of Esther, the festival of Esther, is about to take place in the Jewish calendar, and there are some remarkable linkages between the Book of Esther and current events, both of the 20th century, uh, the Nazi era, uh, very much hinted at in the Book of Esther, and interestingly enough the rise of jihadist Islam of the 21st century, all of that alluded to in the book of Esther, and I lay this out in a two-hour audio program that comes with a study guide, and the program is called um, The Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, and you can find that in the store, on our website at rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com, okay, rabbidaniellappin.com, you can also make sure that you are on our mailing list, you can also read back issues of Thought Tools and Susan's Musings, oh, and Ask the Rabbi, that's always fun, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com, read up there about Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, because uh, it happens to be the time of the year when we are very focused on these matters, and the newspaper headlines from the Middle East really echo the ideas that spring from this audio program. You and your friends and your relatives and your family, you can all listen to it, and I think you will not only enjoy it, but I think it'll be mind expanding. I really do. So have a look at um, at Clash of Destiny, decoding the secrets of Israel and Islam over at rabbidaniellappin.com. And that means, my dear friends, that we are about as far as I think we can go for today's show. And so um, until next week, I wish you good times, nothing but good times, and outstanding progress in your family, in your friendships, your finances, and yes, your faith as well. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.